Okay. Turn your Bibles to the text for tonight. It is Hebrews chapter 11. While you're turning there, we're only going to be reading three verses out of that chapter. And uh, when we read it, begin to talk about it, you'll understand why. Because in those three verses, uh, the writer of Hebrews opens up and deals with two aspects of what is probably, not probably, I think it is, the most comprehensive and most vital concept of our faith, and that is the whole question of what is faith. So if you have your Bibles, follow along there. I'll begin to be reading. You might want to keep them out because we'll be looking at that passage some more and some other passages tonight as we think about this together. Hebrews chapter 11, 1 through 3. I'm reading from the New American Standard with a few changes. Now faith is the foundation of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained the approval of God. By faith we understand that the worlds were created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Now, the first thing we want to talk about, the first characteristic of faith that I think the writer is trying to impress upon us here, is that faith is more than hope. Many times when you read that verse, I'm afraid Christians in the 20th century hear it a little different way, and they hear faith is hope. But faith is far much more than hope, according to this verse, and of course everything else in the scripture as well especially the hope, the meaning of hope that we think of in the 20th century. When we think of the word of hope today, 21st century, when we think of the meaning of the word hope today, we think in the terms of hope of hope so. Like, I, I hope so. I, I, I don't really think so. I don't really believe so. I don't really have any firm expectation so, but I, I hope so. In fact, uh, turn to Luke chapter 6, because here's where we have what, the New Testament meaning most of the time is of that word that's just translated hope there. It's used uh, in Luke 6, chapter 24, 34. Luke chapter 6, verse 34, if you have that. If you lend to those of whom you expect, or same word from Hebrews, hope, if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. That verse is telling us what is the biblical word hope really means there. It's not hope so, because how many of you loan to somebody money that you don't know, don't expect, and uh, have no idea that you're going to get that money back? In fact, you know, if you go to the bank and try to get a loan, do you know, do they just take your word and say, hey, you know, I'm going to do my best, you know, I'll, I'll pay you back. What do they want to know? They want to know if you've got some substance, if you've had employment, if you have a job, if you pay your bills on time. And in fact, today, even if you have all of those things, you're going to have a hard time to get a loan because they're very hesitant to let credit out unless they're absolutely certain they're going to receive that money back. Now, that's what the biblical word hope really means. It's not this Pollyanna, willy-nilly hope that maybe this thing just might be true. It's a very firm conviction and confident expectation 
that what I'm hoping for is going to happen. I have very little question about this thing happening. I am convinced, I am, have conviction, I solidly believe that it's going to happen. Now, the question is that we always ask is, well, how do you get to that kind of hope in the Christian faith? How do you get to the point where you're absolutely confident and you, and you have convictions, you can stand firm in the midst of circumstances and trials and issues that are happening in your life, such as today, my whole world blew up on me today. Just about everything that I had not planned to happen happened today, and I was scheduled to focus in on preparing this message. How can you stay firm in the midst of, you know, the turmoil, the unexpected of life? Well, because verse tells us. It says you have to have the right foundation for that hope. It says now, faith is the foundation. Now, the word is hupostasis in the Greek. It's a combination word made up of two other words, the word for hupo, under, and the word for stasis, stand. Now, in Greek, when you put two words together, it intensifies the meanings of both of those words. So what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is not that faith is the same as hope, but faith is what we stand on. Faith is the, the substance, uh, we can, the, the, the substructure, the foundation, uh, or the substance, or the essence of what produces hope. Now, what does he mean when he says faith? Well, we have to go back in the context like all the brothers have been doing and doing such a great job. And what has he been talking about? Well, go back to Hebrews chapter 1. When he's talking about faith, we can't just read into there what we think faith is, what we'd like faith to be, what we uh, have heard faith might be. We have to read into there what the writer is talking about when he's talking about faith. What is he talking about? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God... After he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets and in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us by his son. Now he goes on, and we'll look at some of that later. But what is the faith that he's talking about? The faith that he's talking about is what God has spoken to us in the word of God. And, of course, he goes on for chapter 1 and keeps going all the way up to chapter 11. He's going to go to the end of the chapter talking more and more and more and it's all about what God said in the Old Testament and what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So the faith that he is talking about that is the foundation to produce hope is what I call the facts of faith. It's the doctrine of God that we find in this Bible. It is the doctrine of Christ that we find in the Bible. It is the doctrine of sin that we find in the Bible. It is the doctrine of salvation that we find in the Bible. Though that is the faith that he's talking about. He's not talking about some kind of experience, some kind of feeling, some kind of expectation that we work up ourselves in ourselves or that we seek after some other strange experience that might give us that kind of confidence. He's saying the foundation of the kind of hope that God wants us to have is, to be, is found in the, this book. Now, I know some of you are getting nervous, and you're thinking, are you really telling me that all there is to faith is some kind of intellectual assent to a bunch of 
I, I, I wouldn't ever say this, dry doctrines, but I know a lot of people think about doctrine that way. Is that all faith is? Is that what you're saying? No, that's not what I'm saying because the verse doesn't say that. I was working on this. I thought of an illustration that might help us grasp what I'm saying a little more personally, practically. This week is Valentine's Day. I believe it's Friday. In fact, the only reason I know that is I asked my wife on the way here to make sure I said the right day. So Friday's Valentine's Day. Here at the church, we're celebrating marriage. And, uh, you know, it's just what we do on Valentine's Day is celebrate marriage. And I'm thinking about that, and it dawned on me, there is a direct parallel between marriage and faith. See, my wife and I have been married going on 46 years. Now, she might quibble with me on on this exact identification of date, but in the last two, three years, maybe, I, I don't think it's been more than two or three, last two or three years, we have entered into a new and unique kind of, experience or feeling in our marriage that we've never had before. Now, I don't want you to think we never loved each other before. We, we did. We, we've gone through different levels of, of love and different times of maybe not so loving too. But <laughs> What dawned on me, though, is as I was thinking about this, this new thing that I've been experiencing with her, and we've talked about this, it's only the last two or three years, it's real. It, it's fuller. It's more satisfying than, than any of the other stages. But there's something mysterious about it, too. Neither one of us can explain it. And, and this kind of dawned on us that this is what's happening. Um, and as I was thinking about that, I realized it's not something we ever sought after. It, because it's, I never thought of it like that. And I was thinking, well, how did I get here? How, how is this happening to us? Not that we've always had a good marriage, you know. It's not like, oh, finally, 46 years, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's and don't get me wrong, it's not perfect, you know. <laughs> but it is unique and it's different, and yet there's a mystery to it. I thought I'd get here. Well, I, how, you know how we got there? Because our marriage, our love, our experience and feelings of love, we didn't seek after that, and it isn't based upon that. I'm here to tell you, if our marriage is based upon the feelings of love, we wouldn't have made it to this point. The way we made it was that our love, our marriage, is based upon the facts of marriage given in this book. We're married today almost 46 years, and we're experiencing this unique, fulfilling, satisfying, exciting, 
mysterious, new intimacy. I don't know how to use that word, but uh, love and, and closeness and, and oneness and, and unity that, that we've never had before. And it's because we based upon the facts of marriage in this book that, number one, marriage is a sacred institution of God. It was created by him. And it was created for a man and a woman. And there was always more involved in our marriage than our feelings. Either, either one of us towards each other or for each other or about each other, that we were based our marriage on the fact that there was something far more important in it than our experience and what we were getting out of it. And also upon the teaching of this word that there's a very, very great danger in the midst of love, and that is the danger of divorce. And we've known from the word of God and from, trust me, pastoring in my own family there is no more disappointment, discouragement, heartbreak for everyone involved, including God, in divorce. It's a danger that must be guarded against. And so suddenly I saw that's the same thing as true as faith. You see, how do you get this point of being so confident in the things that have promised to us? I mean, we've been promised eternal life, but what do we see around us? Death. I got news today that my stepmother passed away last night. Reminded me of the news I got when I was just newly married of my own mother passing away. and Then my spiritual mother, and I buried a lot of people. And you know, when you look at those things, those dead bodies, eternal life, really? On and on it goes. We have lots of, lots of things in the word of God. But if we base it on our temporary, momentary, individualized, specific feelings and emotions and experiences... We're not going to get to that point of convic conviction, settled conviction and hope. So faith, yes, there is a fact side of faith. And there is also a feeling. Now, turn to Luke. Excuse me, John. John, chapter 14, because that's an illustration, but every illustration is limited and must be based upon the word of God. And I believe it's based on our text, but this part kind of builds up that idea a little bit more. John chapter 14, verse 21. Now follow this. He who has my commandments... And keeps them. Now, don't get nervous. Keep doesn't mean obey perfectly. I know whenever, many times we read that, we think that means, oh, i got to obey. No, it, it means obey. But it's deeper and it's wider than obey. That word keep means to 
treasure, to honor, to hold in high esteem and regard and to protect. In fact, you could replace it with the word love. Not technically a translation, but the effect of it is. He who has my commandments and treasures them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me, here comes, here comes the mystery, shall be loved by my Father. And I will love him. Oh, look at the next one. And disclose myself to you. You see that? It's the fact of faith. It's the words of the Bible that we treasure and we honor and we hold to and we follow and we obey and we apply in our lives. And if and as we do that, the, the experience of faith, the feeling of faith begins to happen in our lives. Now turn over a couple verses, 23. Jesus is a good preacher. Just in case you missed the point, he repeats it. So verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him. Now before we go on, do you know who the him is? It's Judas Iscariot. Now, this is a guy who wanted the feelings of faith and sought the feelings and the experience of faith. But he sought them on his own terms, on the basis of his own human thinking and on the basis of his own human reasoning. And he wanted Jesus to be of the physical king and he took things into his own hands to see if he could make that happen. And he lost out on the feelings of faith. Notice what Jesus says again. And Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep, honor, cherish, treasure, guard my word, my and my Father will love him, and we will come to him <laughs> and make our abode with him you see that's why the author of Hebrews is telling us we are not going to have that kind of hope that God wants us to have and he sent Jesus Christ into the world so that we could have we are not going to have that if we seek that feeling that experience in and of itself but only as we found ourselves on the teaching in this word. Second great principle that he wants to tell us about faith. We didn't look. What time am I supposed to stop? I think it was 20 after, so 17, so I have at least 45 minutes left. Found in verse 3, look at it. Back in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith we understand. Now notice here again the emphasis on faith on the, on the understanding side. 
Not the experience side, not the feeling side, because it always begins down there and moves up to the other. By faith, we understand that the worlds were, were prepared. Uh, the Greek word there really means perfectly fitted, perfectly fitted. We understand that the worlds were perfectly fitted by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Second great principle of biblical faith is that biblical creation is the foundation of biblical faith. Now I know there are people outside of the church that don't believe in that, and I know there are people, growing number of people inside the church in the 21st century that um, question that. But what I want to share with you is three or four Reasons why we can have confidence in what the Bible teaches about everything, including creation. Look, first of all, right there in our text, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. I don't, there's no, there's no greater, more concise refutation of the, of of evolution as opposed to creation, then right there in that verse, notice what he says. He says, by faith, and in other words, everything this book says to us, we understand that it's God that has perfectly fitted out the universe, not the survival of the fittest, not accidents and trial and error and random mutation and chance and all of that, but God perfectly fitted it uh, by himself. And how did he do that? <laughs> out of stuff that never existed before fundamental issue of evolution is that, you know, matter is eternal and matter changes over time and ultimately becomes chemicals and ultimately becomes organic chemicals and ultimately becomes simple cells, what they thought was possible, uh, complex cells and, you know, on and on and on until everything that's here, including human beings. But God's word here tells us that what you can see was miraculously made out of something you cannot see. Go back to Hebrews chapter 1. Because you see, the first reason we can be confident that the Bible is true when it talks about creation is the Bible simply teaches it everywhere. It plainly teaches the biblical account of creation. And there, by the way, there's only one biblical account of creation. It's found in Genesis 1.1, and it's the six days of creation. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Now, what is that verse saying about Genesis chapter 1? It's talking about the Old Testament that God spoke through the prophets in many and various ways. It's saying Genesis 1 is God's speech. It's not Moses' speech. It's not somebody else's speech. Moses probably recorded it, although I don't think Moses recorded it. I think God gave him some, some written, uh, written testimony to it that he used, but that's another, another message. But... Uh, the bottom line here, Hebrews, is, is that the author of Genesis chapter 1 is, is God. And so when we read chapter, Genesis chapter 1, it is God 
who's the author of that. Turn over to Matthew chapter 19. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip over some stuff, but I always tell myself I'm going to pay attention to that clock and watch it. I lose track. Hebrews chapter 19. I didn't, Hebrews. Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to pick up down here at verse 3. And some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? And Jesus answered and said, You know what? I really don't have any idea about that, but let me give you my opinion. Is that what your version says? Well, there's lots of people who have different ideas. In fact, indeed, did you know that? that the, that's what the whole issue was about. There were two main schools of teaching at that time, and one had one idea and one had the other. Did Jesus say, you know, there's two kinds of teachings, you know, and let's look at these and let's figure out which one, you know, that you think, you know, best fits it. You know, did Jesus say, you know, really, uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't think, you know, God said anything about that. I don't know about your version, but my version says this. And Jesus answered and said, have you not read Genesis? Now, he didn't say Genesis, but he quoted that portion of Genesis. Now, notice he didn't say, have you been a Hebrew scholar? Have you been a linguist? Have you been an archaeologist? Have you been a historian so you could pierce the deep the deep history and the deep science that's involved in this. He said, no, all you got to do is read it. It's right there, straightforward, simple. When you want to talk about divorce and marriage, here it is. Have you not read that God made them, past tense, completed action, in the beginning, point of time, male and female. He didn't say they started out as blobs and became asexual, other kind of blobs, and then finally, somehow, you know, they developed male and female. From the beginning, point of time, instantaneous, miraculous creation, male and female. Genesis. And then he goes over in, in five and he does the same thing and says, <laughs> the whole purpose of what this marriage thing that, that God created is this. And he quotes Genesis again. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things about how Jesus treats Genesis. First of all, he treats it as absolutely true, no question about it being true. But he also treats it as being important and vital for personal issues of the greatest importance. I already mentioned this. There, I don't think there is anything more important in all of life than marriage. And I don't think there is anything sadder. And I just, you know, my, and I know Pastor knows this too, worked with people who have been devastated by divorce. I know I was 
20 years, 20 years old. 20 years old when my parents divorced. Adult. Independent. On my own. I was devastated. It took me four or five years to recover from that. 45, she said back there. <laughs> you see, if we, under, if we understood, if we understood that, that this creation is absolutely foundational to everything else that we believe. I mean, if it's not true, what does that say about Jesus here? He's wrong? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, there's others we could look at, but the point is this. It is simply taught throughout the Word of God. Now, I'm going to cut out a couple of the other reasons because we do want to have some time to go through. Let me give you a reason that will really shock you, knock your socks off, surprise you, because we've all been propagandized. There is no science. Did you hear me? There is no science to contradict the biblical account of creation. Now, I want to say it one time. No science. There is no scientist in the world that believes in evolution and rejects creation because of science. Because there is no science. Now, I know what you're thinking. You know, who are you to be telling me that? You're just some has-been old pastor and some struggling old new insurance agent. And what do you know about science? Well, that's all true. Um, so I'm going to give you a quote from a man who does know about science. This is a guy named Michael Behe. He's not a creationist, actually. He's not a, definitely not a young earth creationist. He is what's today known as an intelligent design believer. But he used to be an evolutionist, and he came to intelligent design and the rejection of evolution because of the absence of any science. Now, this is what he says. I'm going to quote it for you. I, I had about 15 quotes I was going to share with you, but my wife said it would be boring. So, Molecular evolution. Now, you know what that is. That's evolution at the absolute, I mean, you, it's at the vis invisible level of life. Okay? You, molecules. You can't see them except by, you know, powerful instruments. And um, it is a relatively new uh, science only, you know, since, I don't know, maybe the last 20 years or so. Molecular evolution is not based on scientific evidence. This is a scientist who's in that field, and, and he knows all of this. In fact, he, well, I'll read it on. There is, a, there is no publication in any of the scientific literature, no, none in the pre uh, prestigious journals, special journals, or books, nothing that describes how evolution of any real complex biochemical system 
could even possibly have occurred. There are assertions that such evolution occurred, but absolutely none are supported by pertinent experiments or calculations whatsoever. Now, one more. And then we'll get to the final one that will really blow your mind. This is written by a guy named uh, Frederick Hoyle, Nobel Prize astronomer, not, not a creationist, not even a Christian, but he is a scientist. If one is not prejudiced, this is another way we've been propagandized. We think scientists are all objective. Do you know they're sinners? Do you know they lie? Oh, well, that's another story too. If one is not prejudiced either by social beliefs or scientific training to believe that life originated by evolution on the earth, this one simple probability calculation wipes the idea entirely out of court. And the calculation that he's talking about is a calculation of the probability of an enzyme, which is a little chemical thing inside of each one of our cells that's absolutely necessary for human life. In fact, there are about 2,000 of them that are absolutely necessary for life. And he's calculated, this guy that I quoted, he's calculated what the probability is of those enzymes occurring in nature by simply natural random processes. And that probability is 10, 1 out of 10 to the 40,000th power. Now, scientific notation, that's a 10 followed by 40,000 zeros. If you were to print that out on a cube computer paper, I would, could probably, old computer paper, they, you know how they used to be connected. Uh, I could throw that out here and it would roll out the door. <laughs> In fact, you know what the statistical definition of impossible is? 10 to the 150th power. That's the mathematical definition that math uses. If something has a probability 1 out of 10 to the 150, it's considered to be absolutely impossible because there's not enough matter, there's not enough time, and there's no mechanism by which that could possibly ever happen. So the probability of these enzymes, which is just one little teeny, teeny, teeny tiny part, but important part of the huge complexity of human life, is 267 times impossible. <laughs> there is no science. There are no fossils. There is no mathematics. There, there is no scientific experiment. There is no, no scientific calculation. All there is are people who claim to be scientists and claim to be objective saying that somehow it must have happened. But we don't know how we just know that it must have happened because we can't possibly let God be the agent because what? Then we would be accountable to him. The Bible plainly teaches it. 
everything we believe in the Bible depends upon it. The deity of Christ, the salvation of Jesus that he provides us, the resurrection. I mean, it, it, where do you draw the line? If, if God's account of creation isn't accurate and true, maybe resurrection. Maybe Jesus didn't really physically resurrect from the grave. Maybe it was just kind of a hoax he played on everybody to get power and prestige. And just, Where do you draw the line? How do you know what to trust, what you can base your hope upon or not, unless it is all true? Turn to Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. I am moving towards conclusion. Well, I can be so confident that the biblical account of creation is a firm foundation for our faith. Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 8 there. Well, actually beginning at verse 9, we have many times called the Lord's Prayer, but really more accurately it should be called the Disciples' Prayer. But anyway, here it is. And before I read it, I want to just give you a little bit uh, of understanding that this prayer is not what we normally think that it is. When Jesus tells us to pray this, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. When we, when we read that, we think that Jesus is telling us to pray and ask God to make his name holy. Oh, God. In fact, most of the time in our prayers, that's what we do. God, would you do this for me? Someone else. Would you, God, you do this. God, you do this. God, do this. God, do this. But the Greek grammar here is a very is a unique form, very intense form, but it's a plea almost as it is a plea that God would enable me to do it. So what Jesus told us to pray is our Father's on heaven, help me make your name holy. Oh, don't you need help to do that? <laughs> help make me, help me make your name holy. And then the next one, help me. Make thy kingdom come to this earth. And then the next one. Help me do thy will on this earth. Now let me ask you, as it is done in heaven, how do you think God's will is done in heaven? Halfway? Partway? Insecurely? Tentatively? <laughs> what? Oh, well, I have. God has told us, turn to Revelation chapter 4, and we'll see how God's will is done in heaven. Now, I'm not going to go into interpretation of all the details. I don't think they're really there to be interpreted. I think they're there to give us a feeling, to make an impression upon what's going on in there. And the impression, of course, is awesome, <laughs> overwhelming, uh, majesty, glory, wonder surrounding everything that's going on. And so let pick up at verse 8. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings and full of olives all around and within, and day and night they do not cease to sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks 
to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and they will worship him who lives forever and they will cast their crowns before the throne and listen to what they will say. Worthy art thou, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power now, remember, we are to pray that God would help us do his will on earth as it's done in heaven. What are they doing in heaven? They are giving God glory and honor and power and worship. Why? Because you created all things. And because of your will, they came into being and were created in the first place. Believing in biblical creation is God's will for our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks and praise and honor and glory for being our creator. For then we realize that you are our savior precisely because you are personally involved in our creation. We believe in you. We trust in you. We thank you for all the facts of faith that you've given to us and how you work through them with the Holy Spirit to bring us to the feeling of faith, of conviction and solid hope, not only for this life, but for eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.